0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to Tacovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: Hello? Is this on? Hello? Oh, there you guys are. Sorry, I was busy searching the woods for mushrooms and plants. Edible mushrooms and plants. Hey, Stephen, are you there?
3: Yeah, man, I'm here. I, oh, I gotta okay, dig myself out of some of all these greens and things that I gotta figure out. My mind's still kind of swimming from the info. Mine is
2: too. Wow. I can't believe the info these guys of this episode have come to bring to our ears because it's a lot. It's a lot of information.
3: You're telling me you're familiar with a lot of this stuff. A lot of this is new to me. You know, I'm I'm a very simple scavenger on my end, so I had a notebook and pen out for pretty much the duration of it, just taking it in. I didn't need to input anything because, I mean, they were down the rabbit hole.
2: And I, and that's what I would recommend, guys. Get your pens and your papers out because the two people that we're about to have on the podcast here momentarily are about the most educated people I've ever talked to about forging, and we could have went on for hours. And this is a longer episode, but for all the right reasons. Um, Ryan and Emily are about to tear it up for you guys and drop some serious, serious knowledge. Um, and the one disclaimer that we all have for you is educate yourself. Do not pick any mushroom, any wild plant without knowing the, the actual name and the actual mushroom, because there is falses out there and there is mushrooms that you do not want to eat. And there is plants out there that you do not want to eat that are poisonous and will kill you. Um, We just touched the surface of some of the mushrooms and plants that you can forage and that are edible. Um, So get out there and educate yourself. Find these guys, listen to the books or read the books that they recommend um, and definitely educate yourself. I mean, what do you think, Stephen?
3: Uh you pretty much hit the nail on the head because half the stuff I was able to write down, you know, here's the name and what it's good for. And I'm going to have to do a lot of research just to make sure I don't screw that up.
2: Yeah. And and we look forward to working closely with, with Ryan and Emily in the future also, and, and put out a little bit more con content to show you guys exactly what some of these plants and some of these mushrooms actually are. Um, There is some of the beginner ones that we do go over, Um, write these down, uh, educate yourself and familiarize yourself with with these plants and mushrooms, um, because you guys will come in contact with them in the woods if this is something that you guys want to do. And my advice
3: is take a lot of this in because with turkey season right around the corner, it's a great time to keep an eye out.
2: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, we went over a lot of the springtime, um, mushrooms and plants. Um, the first half for the first hour is Ryan and he's going to go over mushrooms, um, and foraging for mushrooms. And then the second half, the last 45 minutes is Emily. Um, and she's, she's into plants and collecting edible plants and things you can do with different plants. So definitely a, a wealth of knowledge from both of them. Um and and it's a lot to take in, guys. So make sure that you 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 really listen to this and and really get the pen and paper out and educate yourself.
3: This is the big hoss version of wild plants. Speaking
2: of big hoss, let's uh let's do one thing before we kick this thing into overdrive here on the outdoor drive. Um, thank you to all of the people who partner with us and make this podcast completely possible. Um, first, we will thank Ethics Archery. Check them out. EthicsArchery.com. Promo code OutdoorDrive10. Who else? Steven?
3: I think the next one I'm going to roll with is some uh, Wicked Twisted Bowstrings.
2: Whoa, get Jillified.
3: That's right. At,
2: at Wicked Twisted Bowstrings. You can find her at Trader Jans.
3: That's her home. Who you thinking of next?
2: Oh, Mocky Mock. You want to talk about forging? You want to talk about cool things? Get yourself um, the Nor'easter Game Calls. Get them in close. com. You want to put some badass stuff inside of a call? Check out your man at Nor'easter Game Calls. Mocky Mock. Mark. He's got the beautiful... Turkey Pot's coming out. Still got a Blood Series, crows in there. An Evo Series, uh, Little Mother Clucker, all your box calls. The Prospector right Series. Ooh, the Prospector Series. Do
3: you see that $100 bill pot call he just made? Uh,
2: I wasn't going to go there, but I guess we can.
3: I mean, nothing makes you want to go on drop dollars on turkey hunting like that thing.
2: No, that thing is definitely beautiful. I cannot wait to hear that thing and look at it in person.
3: It, it, it's unique, to say the least. It's a natural camouflage, I guess.
2: It is a natural camouflage now that you think about it. Absolutely. You,
3: you drop it, it'll be the, the most expensive loss you ever had. That's it. <laughs> $100 bills laying in the woods. <laughs>
2: and they're real minted $100 bills. So, uh, Who else we got?
3: Well, we got to make the shout out to Broadside Camo. The new Ascender series made by tree stand hunters for tree stand hunters. And in this particular episode... It's made for a saddle. So check it out.
2: Definitely check them out. And thank you all of you for being supportive and partnering with us.
3: Wow. Don't say that so confidently, Trev. Why not? (laughs) I'm just giving you a hard time, brother, but on the real at the end of the day, we also got to thank the listeners for time or chiming in for listening in for giving us the feedback they do because uh they help us keep doing what we're doing and hopefully a little better as we go
2: absolutely and this this episode is for you the listeners um and supporters this one's for you guys so you guys can learn a little bit more about mother earth and be the stewards of the
3: land all right let's get into it brother let's go
2: shot here comes a shooter shooter big buck
4: stack stack stack
2: all right we're back on the line with our friend ryan from the mushroom hunting foundation how you doing today ryan
4: pretty good uh all things considered what with the the world and all but uh but i'm doing all right you know um it's a it's an off season for mushrooms of course uh uh uh, in the northeast here I'm, i'm up in rhode island uh that's where my fiance emily and i um are operating out of but that's awesome
2: um, and it's getting to that mushroom side now we're getting to that point of of more mushrooms right with the rain and the warmer weather
4: it's coming i mean i've heard that as far south as georgia uh, morel mushrooms are starting to pop up um they're a pretty famous spring mushroom um as far as you know um rhode island right now nah, you know if you're lucky you might find some chaga that's a mushroom you can find even in the dead of winter because it's sort of hard as a rock that's sort of a strange mushroom that's different from all the others uh the the, most of the fleshy mushrooms are not going to be found until um you know late april usually although the this winter has been pretty mild so it could start earlier than the thing
2: well i guess we're getting on the way here why don't we turn the key kick this thing into overdrive why don't you tell them who you are where you're from and what you do
4: all right well I'm Ryan Bouchard. I'm the president of the Mushroom Hunting Foundation, and we're out of uh, Wakefield, Rhode Island. And what we do is we teach people how to safely enjoy America's wild mushrooms. And by America, I well, our, our region is sort of the Northeast, but the the whole sort of eastern eastern temperate zone. You know, the the Northeast, the Midwest, the Sort of mid-Atlantic area, the uh, southern Canada to uh, You know, southeastern Canada. These are all areas where you know I would I would feel comfortable teaching a mushroom class. Uh, if I went down to you know Florida, a lot of a lot of different landscape there, and uh, I I wouldn't recognize the mushrooms. Um, but but you know, anywhere in the sort of uh, you know eastern U.S. is our our general zone. And uh, we've been doing it for about ten years. We've been teaching it for maybe six or seven years, and we found that we've been getting into something at, at just the right time. Um, we never, you know, did it because it was trendy or anything, but it is becoming very popular because people are really interested in it for various reasons. Um, everything from, you know, because it's a sort of a sustainably harvestable, uh, crop, um, because it's something that's local or because it's something that's very fresh, something that's very interesting and delicious. Uh, some of the mushrooms are, are, way tastier than anything you find in the supermarket some of the wild mushrooms are just off the charts for deliciousness and there's other things about it too And just the the joy of being out in the woods and you know all the different things you see when you're out there that's you know it's one more reason to get outside and uh, i think people need that these days and there's a lot of other aspects to mushroom hunting too i mean there's it's, it's cool poisonous mushrooms that you study that's you know, there's hallucinogenic mushrooms out there. There's there's all kinds of different aspects of mushroom hunting, and it's a ton of fun. It's honestly just about as much fun as anything else you can possibly do on this earth. It's it's, and that's what got us into teaching it. Was we, just, geez, you know, these mushrooms are out there. They've been in our own backyard our whole lives, and we didn't know it until we started paying attention to it. And that same thing must be true of everybody around. And how do we get people to recognize how fun it is and and to start enjoying it so that's that's what we've been doing um i published a book um last year or the year before uh called gourmet mushrooms of the northeast and it was sort of a calendar it was a 2019 calendar but it was more than a calendar it was like a book the 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 calendar part was the seasons of mushroom hunting and then there's a book attached in there too about all the safety rules and the science of it And yeah, there are some safety rules you have to learn with mushroom hunting. I mean, that's, uh, I think anybody would realize that, that, you know, you can't just go pick mushrooms and fry them up and eat them. Um, Because there uh, is
2: falses of, of a lot of mushrooms also, not only correct.
4: That's right. That's right. Um, So for, you know, as a good example, the morel, that's a mushroom that is pretty easy to recognize, but it does sort of resemble another mushroom that's quite poisonous, can even be deadly um the false morale and there are actually a few different kinds of false morels and uh those are the the gyromitra mushrooms and so there there's a whole lot of interesting species out there and certain mushrooms we've we've got a good system now We, we we designate certain species as safe for beginners you know like easy to identify this mushroom correctly and all the way to you know experts only you know this mushroom resembles a deadly species pretty closely, you know, to the point where, you know, at a glance, they look like the exact same thing. And for a beginner or, you know, someone who's just getting started with mushroom hunting to try to identify one of those difficult ones and eat it, that's just, this is a bad idea. So when you first find a mushroom and you're interested in possibly eating it, well, obviously you got to figure out what it is, but a very important question to ask yourself is, Is this mushroom known to be an easy one? So for for the morel, for example, and that's a good one to talk about because it's probably it's definitely the best mushroom of spring, and it's it's in the running for you know best mushroom all around. Uh, Morels are just crazy good, and
2: they taste real good uh, too.
4: (laughs) Oh yeah! Oh my God! Yeah, they're out of control. They they're almost like a uh, almost like a gamey flavor. Like it's like it's pretty hard to describe, but it's it's um, it's it's very strong and and very easy to enjoy, especially fried up in some butter. Um, they're nuts. So so morels are are really something. And so again, about that question of, you know, I I might want to eat this mushroom. Is it is this species safe for beginners? That's that's an important question. And now to go back to the morel, is the morel safe for beginners? Well, that's one of the ones we we hesitate to say it's safe for beginners but it is pretty easy to recognize. Um, It's just that the problem is that the things that it resembles, the false morels are, you know, some of those are actually deadly. So for that reason, we say, well, I don't know, safe for beginners with extreme caution and and a lot of knowledge. There are other mushrooms that we just say, oh, yeah, that's safe for beginners because it honestly doesn't resemble anything else or, or nothing that's poisonous anyway. So like black trumpets, for example, that's like some sort of a summer and fall mushroom. Black trumpets are fantastically tasty, and like they taste like they've been smoked, like they've been in a smoker all day. Mm-hmm. You know, really rich, delicious flavor, and they are safe for beginners. There's nothing that looks like a black trumpet. There's a couple things that look like a black trumpet, but they're really leathery, and you you wouldn't even end up eating it. So, you know, it's uh, it's easy to recognize. Very unique. So certain mushrooms, you know, we we've, we've put a lot of thought into it, and we can designate certain ones as. Yeah, this one's safe for beginners. Would you, you know, would you Emily, call
2: like chicken of the woods a safe one for beginners?
4: That's a good question. Um, that one's sort of like the morel. Uh, yes, it's very easy to identify a chicken of the woods. They're quite obvious. Um, in fact, um, the guy that taught me mushroom hunting in the first place, uh, Joe Metzen um, from the Rhode Island Audubon Society, he calls them a 60-mile-an-hour mushroom because you can literally be driving down the highway and, well, there's a the chicken of the woods over on the other side of the highway. You know, it's they're, they're bright orange and yellow. They're really freaking obvious. And yet, there is a dangerous mushroom uh, called Hapolopolis nigilans. This is random polypore mushroom. It's kind of a beige color, and it apparently is deadly. It's been discovered to be a deadly mushroom, and it it doesn't look that much like chicken of the woods. But because it's deadly... It's like, whoa, okay, you know, and someone's not likely to make that mistake, but if they did, it could be fatal. So we got to take that pretty seriously. So, one of the major um, points I tried to make in my book, Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast, which actually had Chicken of the Woods on the cover, um, but inside I didn't feature that species as one of the um, the big pages in the in the calendar. I put a little further in the book and said, okay, yeah, this Chicken of the Woods is it safe for beginners? Eh, it's pretty obvious. And yet, you have to know this other species. You really have to. So uh, that's a, that was sort of a trick question, you know. Um, now, hen of the woods. You know, a lot of people think the chicken of the woods and the hen of the woods are the same thing. They're not. The chicken of the woods is bright orange and yellow. The hen of the woods is, is brown or gray. Very different flavor, but they're both awesome. Um, the hen of the woods, I would say, yeah, that's safe for beginners. Um, there's a couple mushrooms that resemble it, but those mushrooms are edible, too. So we're comfortable saying, yeah, it's safe for beginners. Uh, if you end up eating Berkeley's polypore instead, well, it, it's not going to taste as good, but it's, it's safe to eat. It's not so, poisonous.
2: Right? It's not poisonous. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, like, so to go over the couple of mushrooms that you've gone over so far, so you went over the morels, the black trumpets, the chicken in the woods, and the hen of the woods. If you were to look for, say, a morel, where, would, where could you mostly find a morel for people in our, our local area?
4: Ah, uh, very good question. Um, I just thought of something I should definitely say okay. before I answer that, which is that you yeah, know, just for people listening out there, um, just please realize you don't don't go out and pick a mushroom and eat it based on anything I say during this podcast. You need to learn some mushroom identification skills, and you know, refer to a a good trustworthy book. And
3: uh, is there one that you be-
2: recommend for them?
4: Well. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna sound selfish here, but I really did. Uh, I do recommend my own book, Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast 2019, because I deliberately designed it to be the best introduction to safe mushroom hunting um, for our part of the United States. And is there a place uh, to it, get them?
2: Where where can they find it?
4: Um, actually, our website, mushroomhunting.org. Uh, you can order it from the shop, and uh, it is it is a 2019 calendar that's in there. But just ignore that. It's we've still got you know, a few hundred copies of it left. And, and it, it really, it came out great. And we've we've turned on literally thousands of people to mushroom hunting uh, through this book. And uh, we still got a bunch of copies. So if, if you're interested, I would, I would get it and just ignore what year the calendar is for because it's loaded with photos and information. Um, and it also recommends other books. Like I said, I don't mean to be selfish about it, but I, I did try to make my own book to be the, the best introduction. But it recommends other things, like these mushrooms called the Boletes, Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole family of mushrooms many different kinds of eats. and there's a whole book about the boletes uh by alan and arlene Bissett and uh eats of eastern north america um and we use that thing all the time and and there's classic books like the audubon field guide by gary linkoff gary linkoff passed away a couple of years ago he was 75 he taught more people in this country how to do mushroom hunting safely than anybody else and and he's hugely influential on us we were lucky enough to go mushroom hunting with him several times and learn from his lectures and stuff so you know he's a fantastic uh influence and and then you know david aurora's book mushrooms demystified that there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of great mushroom books out there and i certainly don't mean to say that you know mine's the one you gotta have but i did make it like the best intro and it, it really breaks down which ones are safe for beginners and how to identify them and there are different mushrooms for every season. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, before I start talking in detail about morels, I just wanted to mention, we. you know, you guys mentioned this, uh, there's like the false morel and just, uh, be careful out there, you know, refer to a book, um, you know, send an email to the mushroom hunting foundation. If you have a question info at mushroomhunting.org. um, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, we're, we're, you know, here to be a resource for mushroom hunters, uh, and uh so okay so enough of the the disclaimer i just want to make sure you guys don't get hurt or anything uh there there are poisonous mushrooms so to find morels (laughs) so people call us sometimes and say can you take us morel hunting this spring and well we what we have to tell them is well yeah we can take you but we can't guarantee we're gonna find them morels can sometimes be very difficult to find um, some people are lucky and they have a yard where a hundred morels grow every year, and other people would, you know, give their left nut to be able to find one or two. And it's it's you know it's a little unfair sometimes. Some people are just lucky, and then there's places where they're a little more abundant. Um, the Midwest in particular, oh, Michigan, yeah. Wisconsin, you know, they're they're fairly famous for having. Um, loads of morels uh, sometimes but.
2: we have a lot of friends that are in the midwest and they're constantly always posting up pictures of morels and it is so upsetting because here in the northeast <laughs> there's not a lot of morels and they're tough to find or you they have are. the people that like you're saying that have them in their backyard and they just run them over with the lawnmower they don't even know what
4: they're running over <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's true so it's true about it. it we talked to a guy in michigan who said Oh, I didn't know what they were for the longest time. I would find them growing in my yard, and I'd, I'd step on them, and they would pop. And, you know? Oh, my God, are you crazy?
2: So, <laughs> Do you know what you uh, have?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like throwing gold down the toilet. Exactly.
2: So so how how would you tell the difference between a regular morel and a false morel?
4: Well, um, I could show you more easily with a picture, of but course. the main thing is that a morel, if you slice it in half from the top down, it's hollow inside like a sock. So the stem and the cap part with all the kind of honeycomb look to it, that whole thing, the stem into the cap is all just one big hollow sock shape. Now a false morel, you cut it open and there will be hollow parts in there, but it'll be all folded in and over each other, little chambers and convoluted, you know, um, folds. And it's just not like a one big hollow chamber mm-hmm. like a morel is. Um, and also there, if you look at pictures of the two, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious and, you know, again, I'm tempted to say, yeah, morels are safe for beginners because they're, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty easy one, but the false morel can be deadly. Now the thing with the false morel, some people eat them and some people have died eating them. And that's uh, a little bit confusing. There, there aren't too many mushrooms that are like that. You know, most, most mushrooms are known to be either edible, safe and edible, or poisonous, mildly poisonous or deadly poisonous, or unknown, as in nobody knows if this species is edible or not. But there's, this one, the false morel, has been very mysterious because there's a uh, highly toxic compound in it, uh, monomethyl hydrazine, which is a component of rocket fuel, this mmh stuff is is really bad for humans and it's very volatile so sometimes the false morel will you know the the mmh in that mushroom will not really be there or will have dissipated somehow during its growth um and others will be loaded with it and so some people say oh you have to boil it and then it'll be safe and other people say you have to cook it this way or that way long term most people side on the idea of it's not actually totally safe it's sort of like um i don't know sort of like eating raw cookie dough it's like you know it's is it maybe it's not that big a deal but you really shouldn't do it because if you get if you have some bad luck you could you know you get some serious illness from it right so you know it's 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 like that um the false morel, we were blown away when we went to Michigan last year. And we set up a little table um, to promote our book and everything. And we, we were at a couple of big morel festivals there. And we wanted to find false morels, but we were kind of busy all day with our tables set up at these festivals. So we couldn't go out mushroom hunting. So we got this cool little placard that we made on the computer with like a... It was like an Old West wanted poster. It was like wanted false morels and, and other strange species. And then if you read down below, it said, you know, we want to study these mushrooms. If you find a cool mushroom, you don't know what it is, you know, bring it to us. So then these guys brought us this load of false morels, like a, a bucket. It, it was more than a bucket, you know, it's like a, a giant laundry bag full. Of, I think it was a laundry bag. And we set them up on the table and took pictures of them and everything. And, you know, people wanted to eat them. And people were like, oh, yeah, it's a beefsteak. Beefsteak morel, right? what we call beefsteak is a completely different mushroom, and uh, a lot of people told us told us they ate them, and that they were delicious, and it's very tempting to us because we've tried a lot of species. You know, we've tried over 250 species of mushrooms, wow. and we'd love to try the false morel, especially since people say it's so good. But ultimately, it's not worth a risk like that. I mean, that's that's the decision. Excuse me, that's the decision we made to to not try it, and. Probably the right decision. Um, the most responsible thing I heard about it there was this guy saying, "Yeah, I I've eaten them my whole life, but I don't tell anybody else that they should because I know that there is a there is a danger. If you get right. one that's got a lot of that chemical in it, then you could be in trouble." And uh, uh, it's a strange one, you know. That's that's a that's a strange question. But but the morel itself is uh, pretty unique, kind of an iconic mushroom, in- and.
2: They say for like our area, like to find elm trees, but we had a huge elm tree kill off. So like, where would you yes. find, or where do you go and find these the morels? I know they're, they're they are so hard, but a lot of people well, say like near places that have high minerals. Um, but
4: right, they they say maybe the Midwest has more limes um, limestone, uh, more lime in the in the soil, and that might be why they're more abundant there. But but forget about that, because we're we're not that far into the middle of the country, and we gotta we gotta look around here. So so yes, the, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, Dutch elm disease wiped out a lot of the elm trees, and those trees were sort of the the hosts for a lot of morel mushrooms. Um, to go off on a little tangent about that, you know, because because a lot of they say it in America we tend to not understand mushrooms, not know. How they operate. And and that was true for me, too. Before I randomly took a class about mushrooms, I didn't know what a mycelium was. I didn't know how mushrooms operated. I assumed that the mushroom was, was the organism, but the mushroom is actually just the fruit of something called a mycelium. It's this white fuzzy fungus that's underground or inside rotting wood. And it's just these little tiny white filaments. It's like kind of spider webby and, uh, and it masses together and it looks more like white kind of chunks. And that's um that's mycelium and that's, that's the fungus itself. So that was the real surprise to learn that that white fuzzy fungus that you never really see, that's the living organism. That's the fungus. And the mushroom is just its fruit. So that's why it's actually okay to pick mushrooms uh, environmentally wise. You know, it's like you pick the mushroom, it's very similar to picking berries off of a bush. The The bush is still there. It's going to provide berries for you next year. Same thing with the mycelium. That mycelium is still inside that stump or under the earth in that area. And, uh, you know, kind of probably couldn't kill it off if you tried. Um, you now, in some areas where commercial harvesting of mushrooms is done on a large scale, you, you know, people have complained that there aren't so many of them. Um, because people are picking them all. So, so that's, you know, that, that can be an issue when it's done, you know, commercially, but, but generally, um, you know, mushroom hunting for yourself, you're not going to run into issues with that. And you're going to, um, collect the mushroom. It's going to grow back in the same spot the next year. And that's why mushroom hunters sometimes don't tell you things and, and <laughs> people have their secret spots and everything and they want to be the first one to get there. And as far as morels, we've learned that people are so guarded about their morel spots that they'll actually tell you false information. They'll, they'll tell you the wrong trees to go look under. Really? And, oh yeah. I mean, especially, you know, in areas like where there's a lot of heavy morel hunting, there's a lot of like deliberate disinformation. It's, It's a little disheartening actually. But, um, but we're not going to do that today. We'll we'll tell you some real tips about morels. So, um, so yeah, as you mentioned, the elm trees uh, were really hit hard by Dutch elm disease, and there aren't so many of them around. So that killed off a lot of good morel habitat, unfortunately. But there are other host trees for morels. Um, in western Connecticut and western Massachusetts, we've had good luck hunting under ash. And ash trees. Ash trees are, you know. Um, they're, they're they've got a unique kind of bark, and it's probably pointless for me to even try to describe it uh, on air. But uh, if you can get familiar with the bark of an ash tree. Um, that's a that's a good habitat. And if you you know, as you walk around, if you're out hunting or fishing, you want to start thinking about different kinds of trees, because what happens with mushroom hunting is you know you can go for a random walk in the woods, and just find whatever mushrooms you happen to find, whatever trees you happen to walk past. But if you're trying to look for a certain kind of mushroom, then it's like, okay, what's the habitat? What kind of trees does it live with? And what's the season? And so, for example, the morels and the ash trees, if you notice an area that's loaded with ash trees, then, you know, put it put it in a journal. Go there during May, during morel season, and try to find them certain mushrooms are hard to spot morels in particular are like they blend in like like crazy you can't sometimes you can be standing in a patch of big morels and not even know it and that's actually happened to us before even years and years into being good mushroom hunters we're standing there looking at this little tiny pheasant polypore mushroom oh look at this that's too bad this is the only thing we found today all of a sudden emily gasped and i was like the hell's wrong? Like, I thought she, like, saw a serial serial killer or something, right. and, <laughs> and she sounded scared. I said, like, what's the matter? She's like, look, and there were morels all around us in the grass. They just kind of looked like little shriveled up leaves or something. We weren't looking close enough. They were morels, and they were all around, and so that can happen. Morels are hard to spot, so it's pointless to look around in random spots for them because you, you just look forever, and Some people get lucky, but honestly, you want to be in the right habitat. So ash trees is one thing. Another one of the famous morel habitats is old apple orchards. Old dead apple orchards and apple trees. And we haven't had as much luck with that, but someone told us recently that you need to look in like the oldest, deadest, overgrownest with briars apple orchard that you can imagine. And sometimes you can make a killing there. Um, so, so that's something uh, to consider. Old apple orchards. We've heard people finding them under, you know, a pear tree or mm-hmm. other kinds of fruit trees. Um, I'm trying to think um, now. Elm trees. Yeah, the elm trees were largely wiped out, but you're looking for more new... dead
2: elm trees, though, right? Not.
4: Well, it's strange because when when the elm trees died off. Um, those couple of years where there was a lot of, you know, dying, half dying elm tissue uh, or, or roots and things, the the morels became more abundant briefly. But then, when the elms really died off, the the morels were uh, more scarce too. Um, so they have sort of like a final hurrah when the host tree is dying. But uh, but there's this new pest, the emerald ash borer. This little yep. kind of uh, straight little uh beetle um it's kind of cool looking it's like kind of a shiny green metallic color but it's very destructive and unfortunately it's wiping out ash forests just like that dutch elm disease was doing to the elm trees so so there's another whole issue there um and if you uh you know if you can learn to recognize that um emerald ash borer beetle um and alert the appropriate you know forest uh agencies if you see it you might end up protecting your or morel um, grounds because um, they they are trying to like stop that invasive insect from destroying the ash forests. Um, so anyway, that's uh, something to consider. But but yeah. Um,
2: so so when the, you're looking for mushrooms, like you know, like morels, you're saying more towards live trees, but other mushrooms are gathered onto dead trees or dead logs and so on and so forth, right?
4: Excellent. Yes. Uh, no, that's true. So th- what you're talking about there is this. We talked about the mycelium the fungus that that produces mushrooms sort of two main ways that the mycelium operates it either breaks down material like dead wood or sometimes dead dead grass roots or um, straw or things like that um, but basically you know dead material and usually it's wood certain kind of wood sometimes mushrooms can grow on lots of different kinds of trees like for example the oyster mushroom that fungus can decompose a lot of different kinds of wood, including cardboard and other weird stuff like coffee grounds. And so so some of them can eat a lot of different things. Some of the decomposer uh, fungi eat a very specific kind of wood. And uh, so, so those are the decomposers, that break down dead material. And those are essential in the forest because if it weren't for these fungi, the dead trees from all the thousands of years would just be stacked up to the the sky but the other mushrooms that you mentioned that that grow with living trees and those are called mycorrhizal fungi and that's where the mycelium is around the base of the tree underground and it's all interwoven with the rootlets of the tree and it's actually feeding water and minerals to the tree in exchange for sugar so it's actually a symbiotic relationship and over the eons these trees and fungi have evolved to support each other. So um, arborists uh, know about this stuff. And it, sometimes if there's a dying tree that somebody really wants to save, they can introduce these beneficial mycorrhizal fungi that sort of lock up with the tree and, and are beneficial. They can throw off the the more parasitic uh, types of uh, fungi and make the tree healthier. So a lot of people aren't aware of that, that a lot of fungi are out there in the forest uh, benefiting the, the living, thriving trees. I mean, for example, the, these mycorrhizal fungi can extend the reach of a tree's root network. So the tree can receive water from further away because of the fungi underground. So they, they really do benefit each other. And yet when the tree finally dies, other fungi will take over the decomposers, and, and that will be when the, the fungus is in the wood itself. So not in the soil underneath the tree, but inside the wood. So, um, so,
2: so the ones that are living with the, the living tree would be like your hen of the woods, right? That would be one that lives at the base of a tree?
4: Uh, okay, that, <laughs> good good thought, but there's a, there's a trick observation in there, which is the fact that the hen of the woods actually is a decomposer, but that fungus decomposes the roots. So oh. right at the base of the tree, it's like the, you know, sort of the the butt of the tree. The, they call it like the kind of like lower end of the tree,
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, like it was a cigarette or something like the, 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 the bottom end of it is uh, being uh, uh, chewed on by this mycelium. And there's uh, the hen of the woods tends to fruit at the right at the base. Um, so that that can be very true. I'm glad you brought that up because it can be very tricky. Uh, sometimes you find mushrooms growing in the grass and you you would assume that okay this this must be connected to one of these living trees around here but then you find out that there used to be a tree there and there's like the the remains of the stump are right there under the ground and occasionally the mushrooms are coming up through the grass um so so there are you know exceptions to every rule and it can be a little confusing at first but um but but basically yeah you you want to learn to understand how the fungus operates how the mycelium is what the mycelium is doing there and that can help you not only identify what mushroom it is but but track them down Um, and you know as you get good at it you start to notice certain habitats so as i mentioned again just to go back to morels because they're coming up in this this spring Mm -hmm. um, if you recognize oh i'm standing in an ash forest Remember that and go there. You know, um, you know roughly Mother's. Some people said Mother's Day is like the peak of morel season. It depends on how far you are up the coast, though. And right now in Rhode Island, we're a couple months away from finding morels, or at least a month and a half or so, and probably more. But down in Virginia, I'm not sure. I mean, I think in Georgia they're finding them already. So there's sort of a progression of the season traveling up the coast as the weather warms up.
2: I think it's one of the most ex- uh, the it, it kind of that's what kind of bothers me it, and it gets me all excited about morels and you watch everybody in the southern part they're finding morels finding morels and i'm like oh yeah we're gonna go find morels and then the morel season comes and you're like oh this sucks because <laughs> you work so hard to try and find them so then you kind of gravitate yourself to finding other mushrooms which like chicken in the woods and i do a ton of ramp hunting and wild onions and so on and so forth so there is a lot more there's other, there's all kinds of other type of foraging that you can definitely do in our local area, and not just morel hunting.
4: For sure. In fact, um, we uh, in our in our book, uh, Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast, for the page about May, instead of going with the morel, which is sometimes hard to find, uh, we went with the pheasant polypore, which oh. is a, another delicious mushroom that grows in May, and uh, is that the pheasant back? The pheasant back, right. Okay, and some yeah. people call it the dryad saddle. yep. Um, now that's a mushroom that if you find it when it's fresh and tender, it can be wicked good if you if you find it when it's older, it's gonna be very rubbery and chewy. And we've met a lot of people that say, oh, that thing kind of sucks and we're like, no nah, you you got one that wasn't fresh enough because it's it's good. It's definitely enjoyable. It's not a, it's not as good as a morel. What but would be awesome. some
2: of the things that you would how you would prepare? pheasant back because i'm on both sides of the fence here i've had some bad ones and i've had some good ones uh we made some soup with them um we've dried them we've done a couple different things with the pheasant back but what would be something that you would do with them to make them very edible
4: well um one thing you want to learn is something called the brant knife test um i i named it that after uh uh, joe brant who taught me the the technique he developed I, i he kind of he, he's got a lot, he's got a cool knife collection, and he he's a guy from Connecticut. He's a great mushroom chef, and he uh, he taught me this technique of using your knife to find out what part of the pheasant polypore is still tender, and where the knife glides through it easily, that's going to be good. If you have to kind of push the knife and saw at it, then that part's going to be very rubbery. And sometimes you can salvage the tender outer edges of it. Um, so anyway, that, that's part of it, but then as far as how to prepare it, once you've got the good tender meat separated, there's so many things. I'm, I mean, our general suggestion with wild mushrooms is, especially if it's something you haven't tried before, is to just simply saute it in a little oil or butter and add some salt, of course, always with wild mushrooms and uh, and eat it you know, this is of course only after you've identified the mushroom and then the general rule with wild mushrooms is you uh, saute them for seven minutes on medium you, you you have to cook wild mushrooms a lot of people don't know that it's not like supermarket mushrooms where you can slice them raw into a salad if you want if you do that with morels you're gonna get everybody very sick um so wild mushrooms always have to be cooked very very few exceptions to that you always cook wild mushrooms ways to do it well actually emily has invented a bunch of really cool uh ways to um to present the pheasant polypore um she made like a pheasant polypore stroganoff um and it's kind of cool because she's made it for we had a class for some vegans and we made it with without the meat and they were very impressed with how meaty the the mushroom was but we've also made it for ourselves with with beef, like beef stroganoff, with pheasant polypore, oh. and uh, yeah, that was crazy good. <laughs> I can uh, only imagine. <laughs> very, very tasty. And, you know, and the pheasant polypore is something that it's got a. Every mushroom species has got unique qualities to it, and it can be very hard to describe. Like if you said, if you said, how do you describe the difference between an apple and a pear? Like how it tastes, it's very difficult. Right. Um, now with mushrooms it can also be difficult but but you know so some of it you have to learn your, for yourself by trying it but the certain attributes the different species have one thing we notice about the pheasant polypore is when it's tender it's got this incredible scrumptious texture and if you slice the mushroom up thin like you usually do with mushrooms you don't get to bite into that cool texture so we tend to cut it into small cubes and and cook those and and uh mix them in with different things but she's she's made all kinds of stuff with it like a like a um like a gyro like a greek gyro sandwich with yeah. a, like a soft uh, wrap and um uh, pheasant polypore and some kind of uh fresh cherry tomatoes and and uh, some kind of a, a tzatziki sauce um or or whatever I, i'm not sure if i pronounced that right but you know the sauce from a gyro and you know, uh, there's there's so many cool things you can do with mushrooms. Um, we, we actually try to encourage people to get creative with them. And, and that's part of the reason we say to, you know, try it plain first. Try just the mushroom cooked and a little bit of salt because you might be surprised, you know, how different it tastes. Um,
2: Going back to that, like eating, eating small doses of it and so on and so forth, like identifying um, an edible mushroom and then trying the edible mushroom because some people can be – allergic to wild mushrooms also so you read a lot about micro tasting it to make sure that you're not allergic to it
4: yes um the okay well yeah i hadn't I hadn't re- heard it referred to as micro tasting um but that makes sense um that's something that you should always practice uh to try a mushroom uh in a very moderate way when you try it for the first time it's not so much because it's a mushroom per se it's just because you're trying something that you haven't tried before, and people can be allergic to things randomly. People are allergic to portobello mushrooms sometimes, right. but the thing is, they already know that because everybody's tried portobello mushrooms. But if somebody is allergic to morels, for example, they're not going to know it unless they tried one and, and had an allergic reaction. So, um, So to get around that, basically, when you try something you haven't tried before, just go easy on it. Have a couple of forkfuls, fry it up and have a couple of forkfuls and make sure that you don't, um, you know, get sick to your stomach or anything like that. Because if you do, then, well, good thing you didn't have a whole, you know, plate pizza. <laughs> yeah. <it>. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, go easy the first time. That's that's definitely good advice there. But But don't be confused because we're not saying find the mushroom cook a little bit of it and eat it and make sure <laughs> it's not that no. let's be very clear we did not tell everyone to just uh go sample the mushroom um this is only after you've identified it you know exactly what it is you're 100 sure you've identified it correctly okay now you know it's edible now you still go easy as you call it micro tasting um the only reason the only reason that word microtasting can f- maybe, I'm not sure yeah, I like I, it. I'm sorry. Because yeah.
2: Cause I kind of, I, I kind of made that up on my own. <laughs> that was not I, really, I like
4: yeah. it. I, I like it actually. But here's the thing. It, it could be confused with another technique, which is sometimes when you find a raw mushroom, <laughs> right? That's, that's yet another technique. Yeah. Um. But, but there's, a, but there's a, 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 a field technique of uh, an observation you can make on certain mushrooms, which is you take a piece of the raw edge of the cap and chew on it. It's just at the front of your mouth. Like you don't really chew it up. You just at the at the tip of your tongue kind of chew on it and sample it and spit it out. Um, and that, when you said micro tasting, I was wondering if you were referring to that. No, so,
2: I, I um, kind of, I, I made my own words up. I tend to do that sometimes.
4: <laughs> I, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And I, I do like it. Um, I'm just wondering if I would call... This, the cautious sampling, micro tasting, or maybe this technique of, of nibbling on it and spitting it out. Cause that's something you can do. I wouldn't recommend to just randomly nibble and spit out pieces of mushrooms, but sometimes you've got it narrowed down and it's like, okay, this is one of the milk mushrooms. Uh, I can tell because I sliced part of it off and there's all this juice, like just dripping out of it. So this is definitely one of the lactarius milk mushrooms, but what species of lactarius is it? Well, one of the things you can do is nibble a piece of the cap and, Sometimes it just tastes mild, and sometimes it tastes extremely hot and peppery. Oh. And in that case, it's like, oh, okay, this is one of the mildly poisonous lactarius mushrooms. And there, are, uh, uh, th- that's just one observation. So in, in mushroom hunting and identification, a lot of times it's a whole combination of, of, of factors. So, okay, so it wasn't peppery when I tried a little bite of it and spat it out, and that's good. But what color was the juice that was dripping out? Uh, some, some milk mushrooms, the juice is white like milk. Other times it's yellow or purple. I and mean, there's so many cool different ones. And, and sometimes the juice changes color after it is exposed to the oxygen. So in general, there's a whole number of factors you have to look at. And some mushrooms are difficult to identify. There's things we eat that we wouldn't really recommend to anybody unless they were really into mushroom hunting for mm-hmm. years. Um, there's things that are related to the portobello that, you know, look a lot like a portobello, but there's, there's mildly poisonous ones and deadly poisonous mushrooms that look like them. And and there are some great edible ones too, but you got to check off a whole detailed list of small features and be absolutely sure of it. And once you get good at it, it's honestly, it's not that hard, um, but it takes some time. So we really direct people towards the ones that we consider safe for beginners that don't resemble anything poisonous, obvious when when you see it practically like you know sometimes you know you gotta make sure you look underneath and check it out and everything but because there's a lot when obvious. you
2: say looking underneath you mean for gills and so on and so forth because sometimes that does that show if they're poisonous or not you know different um
4: that's uh, absolutely yeah the different uh, sort of structures that they have to release their spores now everybody's familiar with the structures that we call gills it's like underneath a portobello mushroom you got all those fins like the gills of a fish that's called gills and those gills if you look at one with a microscope that's where the little microscopic spores are being released and it's like a dust you can't see a spore but they can accumulate like a dust and you can take a spore print and the spores are you can think of them as microscopic little mushroom seeds and they're meant to go in the wind and hopefully land in the right habitat but Different mushrooms uh, have other ways of releasing their spores. So a lot of people think all mushrooms have gills, but you start learning about mushroom hunting and different kinds of wild mushrooms. Some mushrooms you look underneath and they don't have gills at all. They have sort of a spongy layer. that looks like, um, like a honeycomb or something like that underneath the mushroom. Um, those are called pores and some mushrooms have teeth, little, you know, thousands of little tiny soft spines under the mushroom. And that's where they release the spores from. So there's different structures. And, you know, um, a lot of people think that, you know, if a mushroom looks like a portobello, then that probably easy, but that's not true. The mushrooms with gills, sort of as a whole category are, are not for beginners. There's some deadly ones and you have to learn some real details to be able to tell them apart.
2: So for the people out there that are, that are, you know, fascinated by this and want to get into mushroom hunting, what would be some of the mushrooms that you would recommend for beginners for them to find? Um, I know we went over the trumpets, um, the black trumpets. Is there other ones that are, that are out there that these guys could go and research and, and try and find this coming spring fall?
4: Uh, for for sure yeah um so there's another great one in the summer called the black staining polypore and some people don't like it and say it tastes like liver and other people like it and say it tastes like liver um (laughs) (laughs) we we decided that we're in the category of people who think it's great but um it's just like the pheasant polypore it can get really tough and uh uh, if you don't get it when it's young enough, you're you're not gonna like it that much. It's gonna be like chewing on leather. But if you get a fresh one, they can be delicious. That's that's sort of an, an obscure one, actually. Let me let me go more towards like. Um,
2: How about the uh, chanterelles?
4: Chanterelles are are great, and they're they're a little trickier than some others. Uh, they can resemble the jack o' lantern, which is you know not deadly but it's it's, you don't want to eat it it's it's gonna get some pretty nasty toxins in it and yeah the jack-o'-lantern is cool because it glows in the dark but it's it's poisonous and and the the chanterelles it's confusing chanterelles don't technically have gills but they have ridges underneath that really Mm -hmm. look like gills so it's kind of crossing into a little more difficult territory there those are the one of the mushrooms we consider intermediate level not not quite expert level where you're up against all these different deadly species i
2: just like those but, ones that's why
4: <laughs> oh yeah aren't they, aren't they great yeah how,
2: how about like a coral
4: coral mushrooms now um there's a lot of different species of corals and they are a little challenging. Um, uh, we've gotten into eating a few different kinds. Um, there's one called the white coral that's really good. But the thing is, there's a, a whole range of different coral species that are white. It's just this one happens to be called the white coral. So, um, yeah, the corals are a little more challenging. But there is one thing called the lion's mane that's sort of kind of like an upside down coral mushroom. Um, I know, again, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. But the, the lion's mane is... An easy one to identify and you have to basically have to just be able to say okay is this a lion's mane or is this some kind of coral mushroom because if it's a coral then it may or may not be edible but the lion's mane itself is uh, is is edible and, and delicious I mean it tastes like nothing else we can compare you know we can try to describe flavors of mushrooms like for example I said the black trumpet is very smoky the morel has sort of a rich gamey mild but gamey flavor the lion's mane we just can't even can't even touch it with adjectives we we don't know how to describe what it tastes like it doesn't t- it tastes like lion's mane mushroom that that's about it it's it's unique and you have to try it to know what the hell I'm talking about because otherwise I can't describe it I just don't have any words to just I'm not just trying to trying to say right. it's too too great to describe I just literally don't know how to explain it where
2: where um, would you be able it to it. find the lion's mane like what would be an area that you would look in to find a lion's mane
4: Lion's mane, we've mostly found on beech trees. And and so, again, get into mushroom hunting. You're going to want to learn to identify about 10 different kinds of trees. Um, there are all kinds of trees out there, but, you know, there's 8 or 10 or 12 different kinds of trees where if you learn those, you can go really far. And beech trees is one of the most important. Uh, beech trees are... Uh, fairly easy to identify because they've got really smooth gray bark even when they're very old and large they still have smooth gray bark and uh, beach forests are really beautiful and uh, it's gonna be tons of fun to be in there because you can find uh, a lot of things black mm-hmm. trumpets chanterelles hedgehogs um, a corrugated milk mushroom grows under the beach trees and, and, and a lot of other stuff too but you can also find lion's mane generally in... Uh, we find it in September, October, early November. This is when and, hunting
2: season's starting, so that's perfect.
4: Aha. Yes. And and, and it's a it's a great um, candidate for, for hunters to, to find because it's... Well, hold on. Let me think for a second. Beech trees is where we've mostly found it. Um, we've also found it on maple, though, a number of times. And...
2: Now, does this grow? Is this a decomposing mushroom?
4: It is, but this one tends to grow a little higher up on the tree than a lot of other species. And there are actually some funny stories of entire groups of mushroom hunters and good ones all walking underneath a giant lion's mane and nobody sees it because everybody's looking at the ground. Wow so they can be up there and we've we've had some adventures uh with a you know extensible pole saw trying <laughs> to get these things down <laughs> you I mean... hold the basket and i'll catch it and i'll saw the thing <laughs> we,
2: we've done that with uh with chicken of the woods sometimes you'll find it in the dead like the fork of a tree and there'll be chicken up there and we've backed our truck up to the back of the the base of the tree and like trying to get it and we're stepping on the cab and i mean when you see a mushroom you get it i, I walk, i'll run across anyone's yard to get a mushroom like that's <laughs> just how i am because you well, know you know you know how good they are so when you want them you you get them <laughs> or you knock well, on the
4: door i i can't uh you know i can't condone uh, trespassing but but you know it's <laughs> tempting um and you know it's sometimes uh, it's easy to assume that oh, if that guy wanted those mushrooms in his yard, he would have picked them. But sometimes the guy's just letting them grow bigger before he picks them. So, you know, we we've found that um, that knocking on doors and asking for permission uh, generally results in absolutely um, you know, success. You know, um, uh, but but anyway, the the thing with the the lions man, and if you guys are out in the woods and finding these things, yeah, you don't want to you don't want to walk by a lions man and, and not collect it. Um, That'd uh, just be like uh, a tragedy. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. What what's some other mushrooms that they could find between September and, uh, you know, September, October, November?
4: Oh man, getting into the fall—that's when a lot of you know the the species become even more abundant. Um, our favorite time might be sort of late late summer, early fall, when you're kind of the the fall and summer mushrooms are both found, uh, mm-hmm. you know, overlapping. Um, this is when guys are and, doing
2: scouting and getting ready for deer season. So they're in the woods. So they're seeing these things. They're asking questions. So this would be the best time to, for those guys.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, definitely the chicken of the woods, although you you want to, you know, learn a bit more about it, make sure you get your identification right. But the chicken is, is, is pretty blatantly obvious sometimes. And um, and the hen of the woods in October um, those are both the chicken and the hen are both large uh, polypore mushrooms. They call they they don't have gills under their caps. They have pores, and there are lots of different kinds of polypores. And it's not like you can just oh it's a polypore good let's eat it. No, it's it's not that simple. But a couple of kinds of polypores, ones that we've been talking about, uh, are very easy to identify. We've mentioned uh, the pheasant polypore from the spring, the you know, black staining polypore from the summer. The chicken of the woods is a polypore. Of, you know, usually September. Sometimes May, though. Is, May can be like similar sep- uh, temperatures to September. So sometimes you'll have some season swapping where, like, a chicken of the woods will show up in May. Um, the hen of the woods is another polypore, and uh, one that I haven't mentioned yet. Another very easy one. It's called the beefsteak polypore. Uh, not to be confused with the beefsteak morel, uh, <laughs> which is a false morel. Um, but uh, the beefsteak polypore. Is really cool. Um, pretty easy to identify. It's red. It usually is growing at the base uh, of an oak. Usually it's kind of a small and skinny oak tree. In our experience, I'm not sure why, but uh, there's a lot of fascinating things about the stake polypore. I mean, apparently the the wood of the oak tree that it's growing on gets imparted with this beautiful red stain, and uh, carpenters really prize these these bits of wood. So they've got this cool stain going on inside apparently but we've never done that because we'd rather leave the stump there so it keeps putting out a beefsteak every year but um that's apparently a, a something to know about the beefsteak polypore but anyway the, it's, it's a red mushroom and when you slice it open the inside looks like a steak it's like it's red and white like like marbling pattern and uh, it's very unique on the inside. And so that's one of the ones that's safe for beginners. Um, so that's definitely one to watch for. Um, now, again, not to, you know, try to make this just a commercial for my book, but you, you definitely want to, you know, see the pictures and read about these things. And I would recommend my book, Gourmet Mushrooms of the Northeast 2019, uh, which you can get from our website, mushroomhunting.org. And just ignore the fact that it's a 2019 calendar because it, it's, it's loaded with information that you would want. Um, the identification as as the, is
2: key, though. That, I mean, we can't stress that enough when it comes to it. identification is the key to mushroom hunting because it can get a little crazy.
4: Right, right. You don't and and be careful of the internet because there are some real good experts online, but sometimes you know you go onto a, a forum and you post something and somebody tells you what it is, but how do you know if that guy even knows what they're talking about or not? Right. Sometimes it's it's not necessarily the moderator that you're talking to it's just some dude and it might even be some dude that wants to sound like they know more than they do and there's been some scary things we've seen online and in fact our facebook page needs a real update our our facebook page is still under our old name uh southern new england mushroom hunting and we're going to update it this year but um what happened was i was kind of being driven mad chasing down these different comments and trying to make sure nobody was misidentifying anything on our page and sometimes we'd identify a picture somebody posted and then the thread goes on and on someone joins in and says something wrong and nobody's there to to correct them so that was starting to become maddening and and and, uh at some point we realized we you know we can't go on like this and fortunately somebody just told me recently you know you just set up the page different so people can't post their you know right misinformation and, and, uh, okay, well, we're going to have to revamp the page, but, um, for now I would definitely direct people to, to the website, uh, mushroomhunting.org. Um, but, but we are, um, you know, trying to become more of a presence online. Uh, but yeah, um, identification is key and you can learn to do it yourself. And that's really what we're about. We're, we'll help you. Like if you call us or email us with questions, be more than happy to help you but well, really what we're here for is to teach you how to identify them for yourself.
2: And you guys have classes that you guys run and you do restaurant events. And so there's a lot of things on mushroom that a lot of people can check out and definitely be in contact and see and learn more information from you guys.
4: Cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We do, uh, we do private classes of all kinds with, uh, cooking demonstrations, guided walks, slideshows, and, um, and uh, also, you know, we, we maybe we'll do a walk with you guys uh, when the weather gets warmer, you know. I'd love like, to. Uh, sounds like that would be fun. Yeah, we I, can put, put something know, up weather... on
2: the YouTube page and show a little bit more identification and definitely, you know, reach out to more people and definitely show them some more things.
4: Well, speaking of the weather getting warmer, uh, you'd mentioned ramps, and um, Emily had mentioned ramps to me this morning about, you know, looking forward to the ramp season coming. I was wondering if you wanted to, Speak to her a little bit about uh, wild plants. Absolutely,
2: uh, we'd um, love to. <laughs> cool, think,
4: cool. Let's get her on there. All right. Well, it's been uh, nice talking to you guys, and uh, we'll hope to do it again soon.
2: Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate it. All right, we're back on the line with Emily from uh, MushroomHunting.org. How are you today, Emily?
1: Hello, everyone. I'm doing well. So,
2: so what? So what do you do in part of MushroomHunting.org with with Ryan?
1: Well, we co-created the foundation, the Mushroom Hunting Foundation, to teach people in America how to safely enjoy this hobby. And my role is the same as Ryan's. We do a lot of public speaking, a lot of cooking demonstrations, a lot of tasting events. Um, it's brought so much joy and adventure to my life, and that's why I'd love to share it with other people.
2: Absolutely. So you do more of the plant side?
1: Well, unofficially. I so- do have a small YouTube channel called In the Weeds with Emily Schmidt, um, <clears throat> It's S-C-H-M-I-D-T. Uh, and you have to be uploaded any videos, but I do teach you about wild plants in the interim when we're not finding wild mushrooms because it makes the walks much more interesting for our clients, uh, students. So um, my role is unofficially a plant identification expert, but again, I'm, we are self-taught everything we know. I have eaten over 140 different species of wild plants on my own, but I'm a staunch believer that plant identification is a little trickier much more difficult than mushroom identification
2: so what would be like some of the plants that we would be able to find um coming up this spring and fall that we would be able to um forage for as uh, hunter and fisherman
1: well there's a lot of easy to identify spring greens but i don't want to list them outright at first i want to preface the difficulty of identifying wild plants as opposed to mushrooms you see You can go into the supermarket and learn, oh, this is broccoli, this is asparagus. And that's plant identification, but it took you your whole life to recognize those shapes and forms and colors to to be able to peel apart the differentiation. With wild plants, you see, there are edible parts with poisonous parts in the same plant. There are edible shoots that become poisonous once they mature. There are male and female plants that are dimorphous, different looking completely than what they actually are. And when plants grow in different stages, it can be difficult to identify them correctly. So um, and how, that being said, easy invasive spring greens include garlic mustard, you know, Japanese knotweed everywhere. Um, dandelion, most people can recognize, my great-grandmother taught me. That was the first wild plant I learned from her. Uh, There's something called field garlic, uh, very similar to ramps, which is much more abundant and like often, you know, not protected in certain states because most people consider it a weed. It has a very similar flavor. It's also called wild chives. Um, Ramps are abundant in the springtime, but not always. In certain states, they are also protected and endangered. So we have to always practice ethical harvesting um, as opposed to over-harvesting.
2: So, like, you, you mentioned ramps and chives and onions and, or garlic. Um, those mm-hmm. are two that I personally forage for a ton. Um, is there special techniques when picking these types of, of plants?
1: Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. Let's start with ramps because that's the most popular one. Um, let me just see here. Um, it's it's important to remember that the flavor of ramps is easily mimicked by any other allium, okay? So that doesn't make ramps that... Um, unique in the world of plants. Uh, That being said, to harvest them sustainably, you want to neglect harvesting the bulbs as much as you can. That's why field garlic or wild chive is such a great alternative to that. They may be more difficult to clean with smaller bulbs, but they're much more abundant and they're not protected in certain areas. Uh, With ramps, they can grow two leaves when they're mature, one leaf when they're a first-year plant. So it's important to remember to harvest leaves as opposed to bulbs and do so sparingly with plants that have two or three more leaves. It's okay to dig bulbs. Everyone loves ramps, but you have to do it away from the main colony and plants that have only one leaf because they're the first year plants or plants that um, not necessarily, but away from the colony, like a few feet or yards away with the runners or bulbs are going out and forming new plants. Um, But it's important to remember ethical harvesting versus over-harvesting because Real the really the important here is because the important point is to be a steward to a species instead of enjoying you know and enjoying them for years to come. Instead, as opposed to um, you know, diminishing a species to the effect that future generations cannot enjoy them.
2: You know. So with a ramp, like would you say with the bulb, they say a lot of times is leave the bottom quarter and replant that?
1: Well to be honest I've actually transplanted ramps um, from from an our secret patch in mass I've never found them in my home state of Rhode Island but I did transplant them from keeping the tendrils you know the little rootlets at the bottom of the bulb if you do leave this portion that it is possible for them to regrow and in different areas if you transplant them it surprises me all the time that ramps aren't farmed considering how eagerly they're collected Absolutely you know, it's a funny it... thing what Same is... with hosta shoots. Hosta shoots, my favorite spring greens, they're ornamental. So, you know, I have to kind of sometimes ask permission from people's flower beds and say, do you mind if I take a couple shoots? Because they're absolutely delectable. But that's another plant that's farmed in other countries that isn't here. Um, you know, just a strange you know, thing.
2: So with the ramps, where, where can you find these ramps? Like where would be an area that you would start to look for a ramp or uh,
1: a wild? Now, I'll tell you what, if I knew more experience in collecting ramps in my home state of Rhode Island, I'd be able to describe the habitats for you. But in my experience, they grow in flatter areas, hilly areas, too. It's kind of like morels. You hear all this conflicting information, about where they can grow because they're just such an adaptable species. But when we went out to Michigan, there were literally fields and fields of ramps, the entire You know, forest floor was carpeted with green by these ramps. But here in Rhode Island, I've never, ever seen them. In Maine, they're also quite abundant, but there they're beginning to become a species of concern, if not already protected, because too many people are commercially interested in sharing them, I mean, harvesting them and selling them and making a quick buck, as opposed to enjoying them in moderation personally and for them, family and friends, and being a steward of the species harvesting responsibly.
2: I guess you need Uh, to come to Connecticut, because Connecticut is absolutely loaded with ramps.
1: Good to know, I know from foragers who collect them, but they've never told me their spots.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So with the wild garlics, where would you find something like that? Where would be an area? Well, wild
1: garlic is the second wild plant my great-grandmother taught me when I was a small child. We used to call it spicy grass because it grows much more green and earlier and taller than the kinds of grass. And if you crush it, it has a very distinct and spicy oniony taste and flavor. These um, hollow grasses, that's another way to identify them, is if you slice them, they're just like hollow as chives. That's why one of their common names or pseudonyms is uh, wild chive. And then the field garlic refers to the bulb that you can dig up and shake the dirt away from is an easier way I've found to clean them than trying to peel the dirt away with your you know, fingernails or a knife and embedding it in other areas of the onion uh, below the bulb. So... Um, yeah, they're delicious, they're common. They're often coming up as one of the first spring greens. they are easy to id with a green you know, I- identification, the color of it against the regular dead grass kind of background, the winter frozen ground. These things can come up. Another interesting plant I love is called um, hairy bittercress. It's a wonderful green that's been p- pretty green all winter, believe it or not, because we've had such a mild winter with lots of sun and rain. Um, it's a wonderful little microgreen tastes like watercress or mustards because it's I believe in the same family as mustards. Uh, so it tastes it's got a peppery bite it's a nice and revitalizing it's one of the early spring greens to come out and has a very distinct leaf shape and form um, but if we're going to talk about plant identification it is a trickier one because as I said it's like a microgreen so um, what, what are
2: some of the, what, what what's what are some of the other greens that you would be able to find here coming in the spring or already here in the spring?
1: Well, Japanese knotweed is what I want to highlight because it's, it's enormously uh, invasive in our climate and, and others. Uh, it was imported from Japan as an ornamental because it looks similar to bamboo, only it conver- uh, con- um, spreads through, I believe, rhizomes through the earth, and it becomes this tangled net under the, under the earth in the same way that bittersweet roots develop, kudzu vines develop, it becomes a tangled mat uh, under the earth and very difficult to eradicate. I've heard tactics of eradicating knotweed by having to spread a tarp over the area where they grow, wading down the tarp. Interesting thing about knotweed though, is as invasive as it is, it's equally uh, delicious and versatile. Some people, you know, it tastes like rhubarb. Uh, Ryan and I like hiking with a little bag of sugar so that we can dip raw knotweed into it and eat it as we go, because it's got a certain tartness, but it's much more vegetal. Uh, I've used it to stuff the hollow stalks for different appetizers with different um, things. I've used it to make not wheat strawberry pie, like strawberry rhubarb pie. Um, what else have I done with I've pureed it and served it over waffles with strawberry cream cheese. I mean, I have a lot of my own ideas, and I'm I'm currently working on developing a cookbook that incorporates wild foods and mushrooms. So that's it's on the horizon. Keep it. Keep your eyes to in the weeds with Emily Schmidt for future. Uh, Publication information. It's going to take a couple of years to develop with all my own photographs, but I have a ton of recipes I've been developing.
2: Ryan was also talking about your pheasant back stroganoff.
1: Oh, yes. And did, I heard him talking about your hero, gyro, my Euros, my gyros. Yep. It's one of my original ideas. And I have many others. Uh, they say, well, it's true that dryad saddle or the pheasant back polypore smells when you crush it or break the flesh like freshness, like an enticing. Wonderful uh, cucumber, fresh sliced cucumber. I think it smells a little more like watermelon rind to me because it's got a bit of sweetness. In fact, I actually cubed it, candied it, and turned that into pickled watermelon rind type um, cubes because I've made pickled watermelon rind before and I just love that dish. And I've heard if you treat it a different way, it can retain some of that watermelon-like essence, which I did not believe until I actually put it into practice and I was blown away. That's the thing about mushrooms and wild plants. There's so many undiscovered flavors and flavor combinations, sweet, savory, smoky, meaty. Uh, It's just like unbelievable. So I want to share that joy that I've discovered with the world and flavor combinations that no one has, has ever tasted.
2: And there's, there's so many of them out there. Like every mushroom tastes so differently. Every plant tastes so differently. Like That's you can do true. a million and one things with them. Like when it comes to ramps, like I pickle some of the bulbs. I've also done some bread and butter pickling of the bulbs. Ooh, um, and you can also, I just, I like cutting the leaves. Like you were talking to, you know, mm-hmm. just to save, to save some of the, the, the colonies of them, you cut oh, the yeah. leaves and I just take olive oil with a little bit of salt and pepper and I just put mm-hmm. them in a, a cast iron Skillet. Oh, and yeah. Just Frizzle eat them like them chips. A
1: little wilt them. Oh, God. I love having them crispy style. You're frizzling like crisp. Yep. I've tempura fried entire ramps from bulb to, to uh, leaf. Yep oh i did some my own idea i got that from cooking magazine but i was surprised ramps were in it that's another thing that's great about wild foods is we're probably having another revolution like in the 60s or 70s where people are returning to the earth and wanting more natural gourmet foods more different flavors more organic foods more foods are not adulterated by you know conventional agriculture and gmos so um you know it's a good time to jump on this rising you know movement in food the food movement um, you know, it co-aligns with our vision, sharing these things with the world.
2: What are some of your other favorite pickings um, that that you like to pick this time of the year, or coming oh, this up?
1: This of year? Um, let me see. I had my page open to featured winter plants. Sorry, it's, called, it's spring now. <laughs> yeah. I forget. It's almost spring. First day of spring is like a few days away. Yeah, and everybody's um, yeah. going to start getting ready for
2: turkey season and, and maybe – Oh, I
1: know where this is. It's in a different notebook. I'm sorry. I have like okay. so many notes on plants. I have a like huge binder, but I I did change them all by month and season. Let's give me a, mo- a moment to page to April. This is
2: no problem.
1: Oh, it's I... not even April yet. Here's March. Okay, this is just a, cor- a corollary list, okay. a very simple yeah. one. So I, there's two I didn't mention. Go ahead. Um, okay, so some of the best and earliest spring greens before garlic mustard – or not we'd even poke out our purple dead nettle and a plant called henbit. These are two easily identifiable plants that have purple flowers um, that grow kind of low to the ground, will escape your notice easily, um, but extremely advantageous, extremely early, and pretty good. I won't say they're absolutely delicious because some wild foods need to be tamed with certain techniques to make them a little more um, enhanced. And uh, now purple dead nettle has a somewhat of a, it, easy way to identify it is it's a little fuzzy. If you look closely at the leaves, um, it says these beautiful asymmetrical flowers that are tiny, tiny, but lovely to witness and behold. But the purple dead nettle is covered with a fine fuzz. Um, I found this to be a little unpalatable, raw, because you can feel almost like a little fur on your tongue or something, mm-hmm. you would know what <laughs> But it's very versatile if you wilt it, if you cook it, Um, same as cleavers, cleavers are a plant many people know because they throw them at each other uh, and it sticks to you, but that's a plant, you know, if you ate it raw, it would stick to your throat like Velcro. But if you just wilt them, it's a versatile spring green, spring green with lots of nutrition. Unfortunately with cleavers, there's a lot of different species of those. Whenever I eat something, I like to identify it down to species because with the plant world, it's another thing that makes it much more difficult is there are so many species within the same genus so so many that like well, I was humbled when I first learned about plants because you think you know oak and you find out there's white oak red oak black oak pin oak live oak you know it's just like wow but luckily you can eat most acorn you know if not a mistake in all acorns that's something else I love to harvest in the fall but getting back to spring plants um there's also clover Wood sorrel, Um, you can eat the leaves and flowers of both of those plants. Violets, one of my favorite things, beautiful things to come up. But a lot of people make jelly out of violet flowers. I've tried it to get that beautiful color. But to be perfectly honest, dandelion jam... I made other jams from flowers that escape me now, but violet jam, rose petal jam, they all taste the same. And that's because most flowers fundamentally lack flavor. So I say to everyone, leave the flowers to the pollinators. The only flowers that have a lot of flavor, in my opinion, are like black locust flowers raw. Um, let me think. Uh, there are certain others that have certain flavors, like lilac is delicious. Um, other parts of the plant are poisonous. So only the plumes are edible. Same with black locust. It's the same cautionary statement applies to black locust. Um, but that's what makes plants a little trickier. Now, henbit is easy to recognize as apart from dead metal, uh, dead nettle. They, <laughs> dead metal sounds like a yeah. you know, black metal band. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> purple dead nettle, um, you know, is is great, it has little purple flowers, but so does henbit, and they can be easily confused. Um, but luckily, they're both edible and what send it distinct is the whorls it creates around the leaf stem. So each little leaf is like a platform that covers the entire center of the leaf stem. So they're interesting and cute. another one people know commonly a stinging nettle uh, that comes out in the spring, but most people don't know you can tame the, even the sting by you know simply you know putting it over like a steam of, of boiling water or boiling it in a little bit of water until it wilts. It negates the singing effect with heat. So um, they, we render them delicious and highly nutritious. I tell people all the time: if you cook your stinging nettle, make sure you drink the water because it used to be used as a tonic um, back in the day for many ailments. Um, stinging nettles are extraordinarily nutritious.
2: That's fantastic. There's just so mm-hmm. many things out there. I just, I, and I think a lot of people are very undereducated when it comes to the, that there is so many plants out there, because when you think of forging, you think of, you know, like the simple ones, and then you think Could of mushrooms, ones. yeah you know? Yeah, so there is a lot more out there. Is, there. is there other fruits like that that are
1: plants? Oh my goodness, let me talk, and not springtime, but my favorite, favorite wild fruit is known as mayapple or American mandrake. Um, everything about the plant is deadly poisonous, including the seeds of the fruit, but if you remove them the, what the fruit grows is always unseen because it's usually stolen by animals quickly or the only good patch i have for those is actually in a city believe it or not because there's no animals to steal the fruits but the fruits grow like a little lemon they're like lemon yellow globose more um o- more like an oval than a complete like an egg basically mm-hmm. shaped like a somewhat of an egg growing about um let me see about golf ball size or larger Uh, underneath these beautiful beautiful leaves that are somewhat of like an umbrella as again with ramps the first year plants have only one leaf but with mayapple it's like this interesting pattern that's difficult to describe in the leaf shape but it hangs like an umbrella over the center of the stalk when mayapple matures um, it bifurcates I believe is the term which turns into well no that's not the right term I'm sorry but you can edit that out it okay. splits into two different leaves they grow two large leaves that hang over the plant like an umbrella and that's why when the fruit develops they call it mayapple and I hate that common name because it it flowers in May and the little egg doesn't appear until like August July August if I'm not mistaken wow. so um you have to catch them early but the flavor is what I meant to describe the flavor is as tropical as anything in the Northeast could possibly get I describe it as a combination of um pineapple, papaya, um, soursop, um, it's just got this incredibly tropical essence, but it's 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 a northeast plant. It also grows in the Midwest. We've seen tons and tons of them when we went to Michigan, and I couldn't wait to go back and collect the apples in there in the late summer because they are so, So intoxicatingly delicious. And I'd love to talk to you about my recipes involving Mayapple, but that's something I'm keeping under wraps until I publish my cookbook. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, (laughs) I
2: totally, (laughs) totally understand.
1: But it's something to look for and it's something to take care with. Because as I mentioned, a lot of the plant is poisonous. It was used to, you know, poison people and cause abortions and all kinds of terrible things throughout history because American mandrake is as poisonous as mandrake itself.
2: Is there some type of resource where people can go and kind of find a little bit more about oh, plants? there are
1: absolutely a lot of them. Um, one of them I'd like to make highlight is wild man Steve Brill, who published a comprehensive guide to edible and medicinal wild plants that I have read. And I would like to... Con- um, Credit him with teaching me a lot about wild plants. I think he's based in New York. Anyone can Google wild man Steve Brill. Another one that's taught me much is a man, I think, based out of Florida, Florida, known as Green Dean. He has all of his plant identification things on his website, which escapes me now. I think it's eattheweeds.com. And uh, you can learn a lot from Green Dean. I actually purchased his um, comprehensive video set that he sells on his website. Unfortunately, most of it's out of my region, and uh, the video quality is a little poor considering... Um, how many technological advances there have been since he recorded these things. It's a little pixelated, but you can still learn a lot from this man. He's very, very knowledgeable. And also Gary Linkoff, my favorite person who's ever passed on, um, you know, he died a couple of years ago. Yesterday was the anniversary of his death, um, But anyway he's he was such an influence in our lives we got to meet him walk with him personally learn from him and he also wrote in addition to being maybe i think the most published author in regard to mushrooms besides the besets um arlene and alan beset um gary linkoff wrote the joy of foraging and the audubon field guide of two mushrooms so i learned a lot from the joy of foraging by gary linkoff uh one of my favorite books to remember him in spirit, um, to spend time with him as I walk through the woods, consulting my field guides. Another book I'd like to mention is The Forager's Feast by Lita Meredith. Mm -hmm. And also, um, let me think of the name. A book by Ellen Zakos, Z-A-C-H-O-S. She focuses more on ornamental plantings, uh, like Kusa Dogwood. We're lucky enough to have one in our neighbor's backyard, uh, from which I made a delicious fruit curd that stuffed a cake that I frosted with an infused cream cheese frosting from Kusa Dogwood. Um, It was pretty phenomenal. Uh, The disadvantage to Kusa Dogwood is it has a grainy fruit they have to you know sieve or strain to get around um and even then it can be like a pear you know pears have that sandy quality you know even if they're fresh they're a bit grainy feel I'm meandering again. Um could you ask No, no you no,
2: you're good. I, I no, it's all very good relevant okay. information. I guess I guess if something bad happens here um in this area, I guess I'm coming to Rhode Island. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderland. New England is truly a wonderland. And I and I, I do credit that to our biodiversity here with our tree species. I mean out west is legendary for mushroom hunting because you've got the redwoods, you've got all those large, huge trees that host different species, but they lack certain things that the East Coast has. Uh, We don't have candy caps. Yeah, the mushroom that tastes like maple syrup that's abundant out west. But we also have hen of the woods, uh, which it doesn't occur there and grows many places around the world. Um, So New England has a lot of biodiversity with our tree species and a lot of uh, protected land. And that's important. A lot of open space that has been preserved to dedicate it to people enjoying it. And stewardship has been much more responsible in New England, I feel. And in certain states than in other areas where they've become too crowded to dedicate to open space anymore.
2: Yeah. And I, I think even on the hunting and fishing side, it's so diverse on, you know, us being stewards of the land, also being hunters and fishermen. And, and to add all the forging into it, we have such a huge diversity of, of opportunities. Especially mm-hmm. here, you know, like you see the guys in the Midwest and they have so much more morels and we get a little upset oh, about know. it, but
1: <laughs> that's why we went out there in Michigan because we were drawn to that place. But I always tell people, may the morels rise to meet you in May because May is really when they when they peak. Mother's Day in May in Michigan is what they say, the best place for morels, um, but we had we didn't find that to be true. When we went to um, Michigan, it was far too cold for them to fruit. We saw some interesting things that we had wanted to photograph, like Verpa's half free morels, um, the steak morel, and the other corfi morels, the other species of false morels. I mean, um, there's two different, there's a bunch of species of false morels. I'm sure Ryan highlighted that. Yep, and is there any but other? it's great to have the opportunity to see the species we had been seeking instead of one we already had known, but would be would be able to find in quantity.
2: So is there some other plants that you think that you might want to share with everybody as far as oh, for um, like, so turkey season is the next. elderberry.
1: Oh. Is, is a fantastic, uh, again, another plant that has poisonous parts, including the stem, the umble of the flower cluster at the top. So when you make elderflower fritters, for example, you want to trim as much of the stalks off as you can from the flower area, but the berries themselves are potent antiviral, which I think everyone's concerned about communicating viruses now and today. Um, but uh, I've read a lot of you know, supportive research that elderberry can be significant in promoting antiviral action within our immune system. So um, elderberry is also my favorite taste of pie in the world. I, may, I make a lot of pies out of different wild ingredients and I like conventional ingredients because it's, my mother taught me how to make my own crust. It's a very relaxing process for me. But elderberry pie is <laughs> difficult to describe, but very, very easy to enjoy. Um, I mean, mean, a lot of people have heard of probably elderberry wine. That's something I have not Mm -hmm. gotten into making, but both the flowers and the berries are a true delight. And um, I can't wait for the flowers to begin blooming and and, uh, looking very much forward to that. Other plants I truly enjoy working with are another small one called pineapple weed, which should be up pretty soon. Uh, It comes out in late spring, early summer, and uh, it's very diminutive. It's another plant that escapes notice very easily. Uh, it resembles somewhat a tiny pineapple or chamomile flowers without the rays of the yellow, white flowers around the yellow center. Uh, the, the cautionary statement about uh, pineapple weed is that it is related to chamomile. That's why it looks and tastes very similarly. Although pineapple weed, as the name suggests, tastes exactly like pineapple. The flowers and the vegetation of it, you can eat the entire plant. Uh, I forget exactly where I was driving at this with pineapple weed, um, but it is one of my favorite little guys that comes out.
2: Is there like some roots or something that like, say, in a survivalistic type of way that you can make teas or anything like this, like guys that oh, would be in the woods constantly?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. A common one is sassafras. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with making sassafras tea or root beer, the conventional, um, you know conventional root beer as i suppose it's derived sort of derivative from and uh, that's wonderfully delicious it tastes um delicious i guess i could say yeah
2: no it's definitely <laughs> yeah. if you haven't had sa- sassafras have? because it, it's definitely yeah, a great yeah. thing you can eat
1: the flowers too i mm-hmm. once made a cake from shredding the flowers and i mean the leaves in the springtime the leaves are very tender and they're also a bit mucilaginous. some people contribute them to fillet a typical ingredient in gumbo but i like chewing them as i go through the forest because not only do they have distinctive leaf shapes on one tree but they taste and smell like fruit loops when you scratch them or eat them they taste a little like the cereal fruit loops yep. and um i love that so they're a bit uh, mucilaginous as in they provide some um lubrication for your your mouth where you're hiking and you're constantly drinking water if you run out of water it's good to chew on sassafras because it literally moistens your mouth enough, whether you chew it, to feel as though you had something to drink. And the roots themselves of the young saplings can be pulled right out because it's a common plant. If you see them growing in the understory, you pull them right out of the ground. Some of them rip up easily. Some you might have to dig around with a larger mushroom knife or a knife that you have on you for hunting. And you can make a tea from this by kind of brutalizing the root a little with your knife to make sure that you can infuse it in a tea. But I also have a funny story about that from The Joy of Foraging by Gary Linkoff. Absolutely. He had said, he had said, and and I could quote him if I could find the book. But he had said he had come across some Boy Scouts eating drinking sassafras tea while camping, and they reported some some uh, delirium, and uh, you know some strange behavior and thoughts. And Gary had alerted them to the fact that sassafras contains a substance very similar to MDMA or what we call ecstasy. And uh, if you drink too much of it, it might, you know, cause for you you feelings of euphoria, but also consider there's a considerable danger because the reason why sassafras was, um, you know, not used anymore for root beer and things like that for beverages and tea and gum and whatever they were flavoring with it is because it does contain a minute uh, quantities of a carcinogenic component so legally they can't provide it but honestly the statistical you know probability of it getting cancer reading whatsoever or drinking it occasionally is very very minimal uh, that's just you know it's just you have to be drinking sassafras tea every single day and punishing your poor liver and organs with it to get a, a toxic effect. You know, get the effect from the toxins that produce it. I suppose, uh, you know. So you know, drink your sassafras tea. Don't try to get high on it. There You might be able to get cancer if you drink it every day for the rest of your life and eat the leaves every day for the rest of your life. But honestly, I believe that's very little concern to most people who enjoy it.
2: I think there's there's way worse things out there for you than sassafras.
1: <laughs> that's true. I mean, and also they say all good things in moderation right? Too much of of a good thing can be a bad thing too. And that's very true with herbalism and herbal supplements. People kind of go out of their way thinking they can find a natural cure without looking and investigating the dangers of that. Like even carrots, you know, some people think they can cure their cancer by eating a lot of carrots. I actually knew a man who turned himself orange because he ate too many carrots and that's not healthy. (laughs) It's not. So I didn't know him personally, but I I read about this because I, I read, constantly it's one of my favorite things to do and that's why ryan and i are very adept because we own a lot of books dozens of field guides on on mushrooms and plants and it's actually kind of an addictive hobby because to be truly frank and candid foraging has brought me so much joint adventure more than anything else in my life and that may May even include my fiance, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Except that we got into this hobby absolutely together. So the bond we share over discovering these things has been completely mutual and absolutely magical. Being in the woods all the time has afforded us the ability to witness incredible things. Birds, owls, deer, fox, um, coyotes, uh, bears. We ran into some baby Mm -hmm. bears in Vermont. That was the most singularly riveting and enthralling experience of my life. That would also not want to repeat because god knows where the mama was watching us from the woods. You right. barely got like within 20 15 feet of us the baby.
2: So going back on tea real quick, chaga. Sure people find chaga. Okay. Chaga is something that is found all the time. What what is the use for some, such a thing?
1: Well, to be to be I want to preface this with a statement that uh, one of my my mycology buddies, Arlene Bassett and her husband Alan, they published a lot of books on wild mushrooms say chaga has become so trendy as a medicinal mushroom it's becoming over harvested in certain areas mm-hmm. and sold commercially because it is a valuable and healthful substance but it's also something like reishi mushrooms which can be damaging to someone who doesn't necessarily need it or if they drink or have too much tincture or too much tea don't not knowing the dosage with your own health you know, concerns may not, it might not be compatible with your health. And some people just assume that chaga is like, I call it black gold because literally it's worth, you know, it's worth a lot by weight and we love to collect it. But now we've learned to pass up many that we see because they are still common and we want them to stay that way. Um, Chaga is interesting because it's not necessarily a mushroom. It's the mycelium you collect. Uh, It's called the sclerodium. Sclerodium, funny sounding word, but what it means is the bundle of massed hyphae or mycelium. I think Ryan explained what mycelium was to you. Uh, Mycelium is, you know, related to hyphae are like baby mycelium, and they bundle into the stored energy mass called the sclerodium, and that is what chaga is. It's a sterile conch. It does not produce spores. Uh, the actual mushroom associated with chaga is rare seldom seen when it fruits it fruits under the bark essentially and it's a flat resupinate polypore supine, as and supine lying down lying flat no observable features besides the pores on the you know surface of the mushroom so the mushroom itself is you know a rarity and chaga is actually the vessel that creates the mushroom to to allows the mushroom to create spores. So chaga shouldn't be collected gleefully and sold carelessly. It's it is something that, you know, is extraordinarily valuable to some people that need it because it is good for cancer, it is good for our skin, it is good for our health and immune system. Um, it's been heavily researched for fighting cancer. That's why my friend Arlene Bassette said people should don't, don't have cancer shouldn't collect chaga. People who don't need it shouldn't use it it's too valuable to be thrown around um basically was her view and i was touched by that because we love chaga we call every chaga we see a beauty even though it looks like a looks like a burl to most people mm-hmm. um, but it is a thing to behold and it's also a thing to respect care for and and wonder uh, and wonder about you know, when ryan and i Opposed to this issue of over-harvesting, we tell people: listen, the chaga is also a parasitic species that destroys birch trees over time. Uh, maybe res- 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 taking a bit of the, you know, s- the bit of the mass we call chaga off of the tree might even help the birch trees to survive. You know, who knows how these things work? But the thing is, if we don't know, we should back off and take care and learn more about them before we start believing that we know everything about them.
2: And I think that's that's with foraging all. all the whole as a whole. If you don't know about it, don't over harvest it, don't take it. You know, be the exactly. stewards of the land and and definitely exactly. learn and educate yourself with all of this, whether it's plants, whether it's it's mushrooms, whether it's, you know, roots, whether any any of this stuff. It's all a very good valuable resource, but too much of it can be bad. You know what I'm saying? And if Absolutely. if you're taking too much of this stuff, you can actually hinder it. Um, that is so
1: true. As I mentioned earlier in this um, in this podcast, it's it's so so important that instead of wiping out and causing the, you know, in the extinction crisis we face today with many species dropping off the map that the media doesn't even report on, the problem with that is instead of wiping out these species, we wanna preserve them so future generations may even glimpse them, let alone harvest and cook them and enjoy them for generations to come, teaching their families, passing down this in traditional knowledge. And that's one thing Ryan and I love to reconnect people to, is their traditions, their heritage, their wonder, um, their connection to nature and you know reviving that and helping them to connect greater to their grandparents you know the great-grandparents that taught them mushrooms but didn't necessarily have it in their vocabulary to teach them the technical details and how to safely collect them themselves so a lot of who we meet are people who are italians polish asian love their mushrooms and their culture but were never really instructed on how to safely you know prepare them so we were just very very much reporting um you know I'm sorry very much promoting ethical harvesting versus over harvesting as you mentioned being a steward to every species to enjoy them for years to come instead of um you know just wiping them out out of sheer you know delight
2: and and that's us as as conservationists as you know sportsmen and and foragers is is, is in the same as don't over harvest don't just Absolutely. don't just kill to kill like you do it and you mm-hmm. get back with your heritage and you you do it to survive and and feed the family and fill the freezer and mm-hmm. so on and so forth but just Absolutely. don't abuse it because it is there exactly. for everybody.
1: Um, I'm so glad you have the same message in your podcast because we love to highlight you know environmental conservation and the importance of our native species and the balance that's so inherent in our environment that's being disrupted by the overpopulation of humanity and the callousness to our natural resources.
2: Yeah. And, and I I totally agree. And I mean, we can go on for hours about this because it's something <laughs> that you. we feel we, <laughs> we feel so strong about. And R- me and Ryan were having a conversation off air. Um, and it's it's that all of us should unite together, whether we're foragers, whether we're outdoorsmen, whether we're fishermen, whether we're hunters or maybe we're not into any of that, but educate one mm-hmm. another and help each other um, to move forward in this. You know, because yeah. we all need to be educated in taking care of it, and I love that you guys use the stewards of of the land because it's something that we all preach constantly: is being a steward of Fantastic.
1: the land. Fantastic. That's why I feel the burn. You know, anything to bring this country together, to split the divide, you know, stop the divisiveness, and become the truly united nations. You know, the United Nation of America that we are, United States, United Unity of Mind, the communion. Community, you know that we were meant to be to allow those freedoms, but take you know liability in that, and and take regard and respect for all the blessings that America has been given with our natural resources and protect them.
2: Absolutely, I totally agree. So I guess is there anything that you want to leave the people with, any type of well, you know, um, to learn and to 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 move forward and become more of a forger?
1: uh, Yeah, take your heart to it. but your dedication into it, um, as I say, with dedication and will, you don't need luck because you have skills. Um, you know, it's very important to do your do the legwork. Sit down when there's no got nothing going on in the wintertime or very little foraging available. Sit down with your field guides. You know, come to know them by others. Talk to people in your community that share the same hobby, and it will grow in your mind, in your heart, in your life you'll find wild plants and mushrooms that find you instead. I swear Ryan and I are blessed with so many wonderful things to witness and behold, because we care about the earth and mushrooms and mushrooms, mushrooms and plants beg to be picked with their colors. And they just want to spread spores and seeds all over the earth. And through foraging, we can help them do that. But through foraging responsibly, we can help, you know, make everything, you know, make the world a better place.
2: I I totally agree. And where can they find you and Ryan? What is the website? Um, One more time.
1: It's mushroomhunting.org, and I wanted to let you know we've launched a YouTube channel called the Mushroom Hunting Foundation, and uh, my own personal YouTube channel, In the Weeds with Emily Schmidt, will be broadcast soon. Uh, we're working on developing some YouTube content. Uh, we don't have any videos posted yet, but you can join our email list um, by uh, dropping a line to info at or you could... Um, You know, simply check out our website uh, and there you'll find our other contact information. Again, that was naturalhunting.org.
2: And we would love to do a second, a part two with you guys also in the future. Once we get more into the hunting, the, the forging season, and hopefully we can collaborate something together in the future and they'll see stuff on, on both of our pages together.
1: That sounds wonderful. And I do want to also mention that our website hasn't been updated in roughly six years. So it doesn't necessarily reflect our current successes, but we're constantly working. And that's why our Facebook page, I'm sorry folks, our Facebook page has been neglected for so long. And our email list has our you know, our newsletters haven't been going out as regularly because we're just forest people. We're not connected digitally to the rest like the rest of the world is addicted to screens. We love spending our time roaming the earth, wondering about certain things and caring about things more than most people I seem tend to. Um it seems tend to. So, you know, um yeah, that's basically what I have to say. We
2: appreciate you taking this time, Emily, and and taking the drive with us here on the outdoor drive. Of course,
1: I look forward to collaborating in the future. It's been a real it's really been a real delight, Trevor. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
2: Absolutely.